So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool works in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. And I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all of which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and the striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So are you happy? Maybe you are, maybe you aren't, or put it this way. What is the one thing, if only you had that, where life would be a whole lot better? If only I had what? If only I had that qualification that I need. If only my career was just at the next level. If only I was financially secure. If only I was on the property ladder or a little bit higher. If only I had that relationship. We think there probably is happiness to be enjoyed. If only I had. I had a school friend who was determined to make the most of life. He left school and headed for Cambridge. There he won two rowing blues and his studies didn't suffer. He excelled academically. 
after university, he became a fast jet pilot in the Air Force. Think Top Gun. That was him. He served with distinction, but then came out and came to work here in the city. And he was very successful very quickly. Bought up property here in central London. He met a beautiful lady. They married and they had children. At weekend, he would go flying for fun. Now I wonder, do you or I look at someone like that and think, if I had that, or whatever the equivalent is for you, then I really would be happy. Well, it's our second installment in this book, Ecclesiastes. Today's passage begins there, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. So remember, here in Ecclesiastes, we are listening to the musings of this character called the preacher. And he speaks from this privileged position as one who has ruled over Israel. And we'll find much of today's passage sounds like it does come from Solomon, the son of David. Again, do you remember last week, we considered that question of chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And we really sensed we knew the answer before we went any further. But to confirm that for us, do you remember how the preacher observed our world for us with its never-ending changes, which paradoxically points out to us how things actually never change? reflect on this for long enough, and we realize there is nothing new and nothing will be remembered. Long after we've gone, the sea, the sun, the wind, they'll be doing their thing as if we had never been born. But the preacher does have more to say, more investigations to make. Verse 13, he tells us, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So the preacher is going to give himself to see what is the effect, what comes from all our efforts. When we pursue happiness, where does it lead? But actually, before he dives into the details, he gives us his headline summary, which is, there is vanity in a crooked world. Vanity in a crooked world. Verse 14 I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. So he has done his comprehensive research. He has seen it all. He's looked at everything under the sun, and the conclusion is vanity, striving after wind. Now, after last week's 4 p.m. service, I was chatting to one of you at the door, and you gave your view of what you had just heard, and you said it was incoherent. Now, I was very much hoping that wasn't a verdict on the sermon itself, maybe it was, but I was hoping that was your summary of what the preacher of Ecclesiastes had been saying, which is one way of looking at this vanity, or in Hebrew we thought about this word hevel, incoherent. That is the world, our experience of it, our lives. It's like vapour, it's like a mist, a fog. We think maybe we can make something out, but then it's gone, and we try and take hold of it, but it eludes our grasp. We are so bewildered. Nothing seems to hold together. And so there's a feeling of futility. Remember the phrases, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher. And now he adds another phrase here in verse 14, striving after wind. So the picture, imagine the leaf blown in the wind. Well, you see the child loves chasing after that leaf and trying to catch it. But imagine instead trying to catch the wind itself or Even more than that, trying to shepherd the wind. 
and ushering it where we want it to go, put it in its place. And the preacher is saying that is what trying to order our lives is like. Our lives, just like the wind, do not go where we want them to go, striving after wind. Now, it's quite a full-on introduction again from the preacher, and maybe we're thinking, well, maybe that's just the initial conclusion. Maybe there is some way to overcome all of this. Well, verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I wonder if we believe that. That is, the world is not as it should be, and we are being told here there is nothing we can do about that. Do we resist? Do we think, is that really the case? Surely where there's a will, there's a way. Surely something can be done to make things better, happier. Maybe just others haven't tried hard enough or succeeded in the way that, well, maybe I might. I'm wondering, has the preacher really thought about everything, done his homework, his research? He's really going to have to show us this, which is what he wants to do. So first, what about pleasure? What about pleasure? So into chapter two and the first verse. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Now here's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. The preacher steps forward. He's going to give the pursuit of pleasure a really good go to tell us what he discovers. So verse two, he tries laughter, socializing and parties, jokes, fun and banter. But he senses the underlying emptiness of it, the humor in the end, is hollow. He asks, what use is it? What's next? Verse three, wine. Maybe the heart can be gladdened that way, and many try it. We're told the preacher searched it, but the answer is there by implication. Wine loses its taste, and worse. Well, what next? Well, what then of achievement and all that success can buy, the pleasure that can bring? Now, here is where we and our world are convinced this is the way to happiness. Just imagine the hours we put in to achieving it. We devote ourselves to it. Even when we've tried really hard and it doesn't seem to deliver, still our faith is unshaken because we assume the problem must be I haven't yet achieved enough. So we redouble our efforts. And now this is where the preacher really can help us. Now, remember, he speaks as the king the one who had it all. So think Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, all rolled into one. So if you like, if the success method is going to deliver for anyone, it would be for this king. Where should we start? Property, verse four. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So picture it, the grand country estate, putting Blenheim Palace in the shade. That wine, well, it was from his own vineyards, the orchards producing the finest organic fare. Gardens, well, made Florence's bobbly gardens look like a humble allotment. A lake to rival the serpentine, his own forest, and no one to stop him building the treehouse of his dreams. Well, what a place to spend one's days. And it was all his. Property, what next? Well, power. Verse seven, I bought male and female slaves and I had slaves who were born in my house. The point is, here are people 
at his beck and call, his every whim, click his fingers, it's catered for. What next? Well, what other assets might he have? Verse 7, I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. This is mind-blowing, staggering wealth. Anything and everything was his for the taking. What next? Culture. Middle of verse 8, I got singers, both men and women. So this king didn't need a royal box at the Globe or Glyndebourne. He'd just get them to come to him. What next? Women, of course. End of verse 8. Many concubines, the delight of the children of man, the most beautiful ladies in the kingdom, with whom he could do whatever he pleased. At the beginning of verse 9, look, the preacher says, so I became great. Now this is no exaggeration. He's not boasting. This is true. What we dream of, what we chase after, he had it all. Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. So the preacher has the hedonistic trinity, we could say, wine, women, and song, or updated sex and drugs and rock and roll. He'd be living it up this weekend at Glastonbury, but of course, not that in the mud. He'd be in the comfort of the 10,000 a night tent up on the hillside, which are there. So here's all his research. He has done it all. And what's his conclusion? Well, look how verse 10 goes on. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Now, if we were expecting the preacher immediately to say to us that all that was no fun at all, well, I don't think we'd believe him, would we? And he doesn't say that. He admits Yes, there was pleasure along the way. It was fun. Just look at the insta-feet. Magic moments. But, verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So had he had pleasure? Well, yes, maybe superficially, but maybe as the sensual gratification piled in, at the same time, he couldn't end the numbness of the reality that he felt. Oh yes, others thought he was completely sorted. They envied him. They wanted what he had. But what did he have? What gain? Well, he could see, maybe better than anyone else, all his vanity a striving after wind, no gain to be had under the sun. In yesterday's paper, there was an interview with James May of Top Gear and Grand Tour fame. Did you know he's just built a dream home for himself and his partner here in London? But he said this, I'm living in a house that feels like a destination and it's slightly disturbing. I'm just worried I'll end up thinking, right, now I'll enjoy the rest of my life because I don't think I will. I'll just be sitting there waiting for the end. He went on. Sometimes, he says, he asks himself if he ought to have done something a little bit more significant with his life than talking about cars. There are pleasures 
to enjoy in life. Most of us have experienced some of these to some extent. Have they delivered? As in more than a momentary high. And in our reflective moments, we too know the answer. And the problem is not that we haven't yet achieved enough or experienced enough. Will we learn from the preacher? The world is crooked. It does not work as we might want it to. It is vanity, striving after the wind, no gain to be had under the sun. But still we resist, don't we? Maybe there's another way. So next on the list, what about wisdom? Maybe what's needed is for us to know a little bit more. And so we pursue the exam results, the degree, certificates, professional qualifications, chartered status. Maybe then, the more letters after our name, the better. Or we strive to become more well-read, fluent in more languages. What about that sort of growing in knowledge, the reflective life? Well, again, the preacher channeling Solomon is the man to listen to on this. Notice we missed a few verses at the end of chapter 1. Look back at chapter six, verse 16 of chapter 1. Preacher said, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, again, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Okay, so... Verse 17, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much, much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Well, it's graduation season at the universities of London at the moment. You can really guess what the address at the ceremony will be saying. Some variation of you can change the world. You can't. The world is crooked. And ironically, true wisdom, learning more, will just help us to see this more clearly. So actually, growing in wisdom will actually lead to more vexation and sorrow as we see this all the better. There's more on wisdom in chapter 2. Because as with pleasure, the preacher doesn't completely reject the value of wisdom. After all, chapter 2, verse 13. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Of course, some wisdom is undoubtedly a good thing. There is a difference between the wise person and the fool. It is better, isn't it, to see something of where you're going than stumbling in the darkness. But is there really a difference that matters in the end? Because as verse 14 goes on, the same event happens to all of them. What does he mean by that? The same event happens to all of them. Well, Glastonbury last night was a blast from the past. Paul McCartney headlining the pyramid stage at aged 80. One of my sons told me this morning he had no idea who Paul McCartney is. But for the rest of us who do know that since he burst onto the scene in the 60s with the Beatles, what a six-decade career he has had. By all accounts, last night was astonishing. There he was in front of over 100,000 cheering 
fans. At one point, Bruce Springsteen came on stage, joined him in a couple of songs, and wished Sir Paul another glorious 80 years. <laughs> that school friend I mentioned earlier, you probably knew this was coming, but one day he took off in his plane, unaware of a mechanical fault, and it proved fatal. He was 39, two young children. Yes, obituary in the Times. I attended his funeral here in central London, large church, packed. The great and the good celebrities were present. The eulogies listed his many achievements, recollections of how he studied hard, competed hard, worked hard, played hard. But it can't have been just me pondering why. In the end, what was all that for? For what gain, ultimately? Now, my friend was savvy. We might say he played his hand so well. But still, the same event happens to all of them. End of verse 16. How the wise dies, just like the fool. And so, verse 17. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Notice the trio again, under the sun, vanity, striving after wind. Can't escape it. Wisdom, like pleasure, is not the answer. But still, we resist this conclusion. Maybe there is another way. So what about work? What about the work that we do? We thought about this a bit last week. By toil, the preacher would no doubt include any paid work that we do, but also all the rest, all the things we put our effort into, where we're trying to make progress and move forward. And by this stage, the preacher now sees more clearly what happens to all this toil. Verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Jimmy Carter, the 39th president of the United States, left office 41 years ago. He's now 97. But a few weeks ago, he made a very rare political intervention. What for? Well, he wanted to make it known that a recent ruling by the Court of Appeals was not only deeply mistaken, but dangerous. But why did Carter intervene like that in such an unusual way? Well, that judge's decision unraveled a particular act of Congress, which Carter had held to be, quote, maybe the most significant domestic achievement of my political life. That is, his legacy was being undone while still alive. How about us, that project we've worked so hard on, that individual we've so invested in, those achievements that surely will last. There is no guarantee that those who follow will respect our labors or maintain any of this progress that we feel we have made. They may well fritter it all away. Solomon himself, of course, is a sobering example of this reality. He left his vast and glorious kingdom to a proud son who precipitated a 
catastrophic split in Israel and the loss of most of its riches. And so comes the question of verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? Well, the answer remains as it was when the preacher first asked the question. But now, if you like, it's coming into sharper, more painful focus. And so verse 23, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Do we get it? We think, if only I had. But pleasure won't work. Wisdom won't work. Work won't work. There will be sorrow and vexation, come what may. There is vanity in this crooked world, and there is nothing we can do about it. But there are three verses left of chapter 2. And here we see goodness in God's world. Did you hear, as Isabel read these final three verses, there is a change of tone in feel. Yes, life is still foggy, but there are now strong shafts of light piercing through the fog. Will we open our eyes to see them? So what's different? Well, we'll see. For the first time in chapter 2, there is mention of God, in fact, three times. Up to now, we've seen the pleasure of pursuit of pleasure, of wisdom, of work, apart from God. What difference does God and knowing him make? Well, let's read these verses. Verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. There is so much in these verses for us to ponder. For a start, did you notice? Now the preacher tells us there are two sorts of people. Humanity divided into two categories. Pleasing God and the sinner. But maybe that talk of language of a sinner surprised us, seemingly out of the blue. We haven't had that at all so far. Maybe that's meant to get us thinking a bit more about what we've seen in chapter 2. What did we think was being described here? That is, to seek to live for pleasure or relationships or success, but apart from our creator. That isn't just a life choice. It's not a neutral personal activity. Rather, it is a decision we have made to actively reject our creator. Why do people pursue those things like that? Well, they've decided that God is restricted. Restrictive, he is stingy. Stick with him and you'll miss out. What we need to do is look after number one if we're going to get on. And then again, we look over this chapter. and Did we notice, as we saw that pursuit of pleasure in the first half of chapter two, there were echoes of Eden, weren't there? With the garden the different kinds of trees and all the rest. 
We were told repeatedly the king was trying to do something by all that he was making. And what was he trying to do? Well, it's a picture of, if you like, trying to get into paradise by his own efforts. And of course, in a smaller scale, that's what those around us, maybe us, are trying to do all the time. But the point is, it can't be done. And of course, if we look more closely, we see the way this king did it shows his rejection of God and his ways. Questions to be asked at the very least about the slavery in verse 7. Then all the more when it comes, of course, to the concubines of verse 8. So much for God's design for relationships. Then there's a language of verse 10. Of whatever my eyes desired, I did not... Sorry. I did not keep from them. Does that ring any bells? Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Do we remember one before who saw, well, a tree, that it was desirable to make one wise, and so took and ate? You see, sinners seek pleasure their way. So what is the alternative? Well, do you remember those two categories? We've got sinners, but we've also seen in verse 26 the category of those who please God. Now, don't misunderstand. What does that mean to please God? We need to read on, really, in Ecclesiastes with that question in mind, but we do know already what it doesn't mean. It cannot mean that our efforts achieve for us gain. The preacher has been very clear on that. It turns out, in fact, we please God by accepting and enjoying what he is pleased to give to us. And notice here in verse 26, we are told something of that. It is God who gives to us wisdom and knowledge and joy. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God delights to give joy or do you think you need to look elsewhere? Do you believe that that is God's nature, actually? That he delights to give joy to his creatures? Our world absolutely refuses to believe this. Despite the overwhelming evidence, for a start, just look at the creation. In its abundance and beauty and blessing, it was made, it was designed for enjoyment. But there's more. Again, let me ask you this question. How serious actually are you in your pursuit of joy? It was C.S. Lewis who once said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. How serious are you in your pursuit of joy? Why are we so half-hearted? And yet there was one who wasn't half-hearted. He was full-on in his pursuit of joy. He too was a king, but not pursuing self-centered hedonistic pleasure. No, he pursued joy like no other. His commitment to joy and his efforts to attain it show up our shabby, half-hearted, lame attempts at pursuing pleasure for what they are. 
Why did King Jesus come into the world? Well, he tells us. He came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus' driving ambition was to give to his people an abundance of life. Do we believe that? We should. Do we realise how much Jesus spoke in this sort of way? Jesus spoke to his disciples in that upper room. Why? Well, Jesus tells us, quote, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The disciples were saddened by Jesus' departure, but he said to them, quote, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you, as in ever. Jesus then prayed to his father for those disciples, praying these words, quote, Now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. So why did Jesus go through with the agony of the cross? Many of us have studied Hebrews this year and we've seen the answer for the joy that was set before him. And what was that joy? Well, Jesus did whatever it would take so that he could say to the sinner hanging on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' toil has gained for us so much. We could never get back into that garden ourselves by our efforts, however hard we tried. It wasn't just the fog blocking the way, those flaming swords. But Jesus delighted to win for us access. And so now we are able to enjoy God's gifts, supremely to enjoy God himself in Christ. If only I had, well, what? What one thing? would make all the difference. Have we grasped it yet? If only I had Christ. Which we do. Oh yes, we still live under the sun, in a world of vanity, striving after wind. We'll still feel that. But at the same time, we have the one who is so committed to our joy at such great cost to himself. So we can enjoy these good gifts. We have the certain, better future ahead. And therefore, knowing this Christ, eat and drink. Find enjoyment in your toil. Let's pray. Father, we do so praise you that you are a creator God who delights to give joy. Would we believe this? Given all that we've seen in creation and in Christ, would we not rebelliously seek to take matters into our own hands? We do so praise you for the Lord Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross for our joy. And so now, freed from this burden of seeking to gain from our toil, would we now enjoy you and all that you give with deep thanksgiving and for your glory. Amen.